0: We are masters of our own destiny. We don't need to cross our fingers and hope for the best. Systematic strategies can, to an extent, make their own reality. And I think that means that we can create things that people will find increasingly helpful as a lot of their traditional outlets for offsetting diversifying risk are starting to diminish. So I think for the, the, the outlook looks very, very positive from a research perspective and also from you our know, ability to raise assets and to play an important role in people's portfolios.
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today, Alan Dunn and I are joined by Ed Tricker, Chief Investment Officer of Quantitative Strategies at Graham Capital Management, as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Ed, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're doing well on your side of the pond. We are, yes.
0: Um, I will say it's a, a terrible, terrible day of weather today blowing a gale and min- minus 30 degrees outside at the moment. So I'm ni- not nice and cozy in here talking to you guys, which is uh, much appreciated.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, before we dive into uh, kind of the more detailed topics of our conversation, Ed, um, maybe just to set the stage uh, and frame the conversation a little bit so that the audience knows a little bit about Graham Perhaps you could share a few highlights and also maybe mention some of the strategies that you focus on and kind of where the business stands as we have entered into 2023. Absolutely. So, well, Graham is an alternative investment
0: manager. We have approximately $18 billion under management as of the start of this year. And for the last three decades, nearly three decades, Graham's founded in 1994 by Kenneth Graham Tropin. We specialized in providing compelling returns in both the quantitative and the discretionary macro space. We we attempt to provide alpha opportunities across a wide range of market environments, specifically with low correlation to traditional investments. In my world, on the systematic side of Graham's business, we started out in the beginning as a very traditional CTA with a focus on trend following. As time has gone on, we have evolved and diversified the suite of strategies that we have at our disposal, most notably and successfully over the last couple of years, we've had our broader quantitative macro strategy, which attempts to generate returns across the widest possible range of market environments. And more recently, we've also focused on diversifying into other asset classes, most notably systematic, long shorts, market neutral equities. So there's a lot going on. It's it's an exciting place to work, never a never a dull moment.
2: Yeah, and exciting for us to be able to uh, dive into uh, some of all of this. So uh, as I mentioned, we really appreciate that. Now, Alan and I, we do have some kind of different topics that we want to bring up and we tend to kind of alternate a little bit about uh, who's taking the lead on each. So perhaps, Alan, as, as I always do actually, uh, maybe I could
3: ask you to kick it off. Sure. Um Ed Graham are probably quite interesting in in the in, in the sense that as you've described, they have both this big discretionary macro and uh, systematic sides to the business. Whereas a lot of the people we've spoken to on this series are, you know, tend to be very systematic. Um so I mean it would be helpful to give a sense on on the overall philosophy about markets that that, that that drives the belief that 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 both the discretionary macro and the quant um, approach are valid approaches to, to extracting uh, alpha in markets. So, you know, where does that come from, or what what's the belief that underpins that uh, that uh, that belief in running the two types of approaches? Got it. So, look from a from a pure
0: business perspective, there is a valuable diversification to be had. If you look back historically. To put it bluntly, if one has been struggling, typically the other part of the business has been doing pretty well. And it's given a stability to Graham and all of the benefits that stability confers with our, you know, it means that we can invest in the future. We're not quite so living, you know, day to day, month to month as a lot of, a lot of funds may be. And that's been certainly very, very helpful. I think culturally it has a lot of very positive benefits as well. If I was to make a, a very, very broad generalization, this is sort of unapologetically simplistic. A lot of systematic strategies tend to take a relatively simple idea, an idea that has a relatively small edge, and then to compensate for that small edge, they deploy the idea extensively across a wide range of assets, and then they sweat the details like risk management, execution, and so forth, because you, you need to squeeze every last drop out of the alpha that you have. In contrast, the discretionary trader, they're, o- they're only human, as good as they may be they necessarily need to focus on a smaller number of opportunities. Now to compensate for the smaller number of opportunities, they need to bring to bear a far more diverse range of predictive information sources. These two approaches are by no means exclusive to one another. If you can combine the breadth of information and maybe the sophistication of the alpha that a discretionary trader looks at with that rigor and that structure and the efficiency of a systematic process, you can produce something that is surprisingly effective. We've also benefited in other respects, risk management, for example. I think the way you necessarily have to manage risk with human traders is decidedly different than how you have to manage risk with a with a computer that doesn't get out of bed feeling upset in the morning or, or, or something like that. And it's given us a, a focus and a rigor there that perhaps would not be the case if Graham were just a systematic business. And I, I think finally, having experts, domain experts in markets under your roof is very, very helpful. If I think of my quantitative team, and I think the world of them, they're, they're a fantastic group of men and women. They have more degrees than a thermometer. They, they can build you models on nearly everything. But what are the best ingredients for those models? By having access to a pool of people who have maybe been trading markets for 20 or 30 years in some cases, they're not going to tell me exactly what they do. They don't want me to replicate their behavior. But guiding us as to, hey, this is the type of information I look at or my peers are looking at, that gives us a tremendous head start when it comes to constructing systematic models that are trying to access broadly the same theme. So, it's been very, very advantageous.
3: And is that, that I, I suppose, Blending different ideas and, and blending different backgrounds, has that been part of that evolution in the systematic side away from pure trend into diversified trend into as you say quant macro being a kind of maybe you, you, the the program that you're maybe best known for in in some senses now, is that reflecting that 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 evolution or is that more of a conscious decision as to that this might be a better way to run quantitative strategies in in markets. You know, we, we definitely believe in. Diversification. If I look at sort
0: of core investment philosophies that we have, diversification is definitely at the heart. Is definitely at the heart of, of many of them. Now that can take many different forms. It can be the people that I hire. I, in some ways, my life would be easier if I could go up the road to Yale University. It's a great place, and every year hire their five best mathematicians. They'd be they'd be very clever, very hardworking, but they'd have been taught the same stuff. By the same people. And the way they approach problems is likely to be quite similar. We, we need a diversification of thought process and approach. That's definitely something that we focus on. We need to trade a diverse range of markets, and we also need to trade those markets in a diverse way. So we, we need a variety of different strategies as well. Like I'm a, I'm a pretty pragmatic person. No single thing works well all of the time. And I think if you want to produce a strategy that can work well over a variety of market conditions, necessarily, you do need to combine things together. Now, that is not always people's objective. But if the objective is a pure absolute return one, then combination is is almost required.
3: And I guess we've heard, you know, the, the case for why trend following can work in the sense of you know, behavioral biases and speeds of reactions, etc. Is it a similar case, or, or or what is the case for why it's possible to model from an economic perspective uh, the relationships between economic variables and markets, and and find predictive relationships that you can exploit in in a, in a systematic program?
0: You know, it, it's not trivial, but but certainly many of the the arguments that are made for trend following they they apply. To the use of macro data as well. You know there are some that are that are more straightforward. You can fairly accurately model supply and demand for for example. Now, you can do that for commodities through, and the range of data you can get these days is remarkable. It can range from weather forecasts to people that will drive around the Midwest in a truck and they will check the planting progress of every single field and give you an incredibly detailed markup, and that gives you a good predictor of what the future supply and demand balance or imbalance is is going to look like. There's also a behavioral aspect to it as well. And we see that through sentiment. And that's very clear at the moment, right? You take inflation data currently. um, Two years ago, nobody cared about inflation data. Two years from now, maybe nobody cares about inflation data. But today, inflation data is all important. Now, curiously, it's not all important in and of itself, but it's being used as a prism through which other macroeconomic data points and relationships of view. So good news is sort of bad news today for markets because people are seeing inflation data and they're extrapolating what likely future monetary policy is going to look like. So it's not straightforward, but the markets, the majority of the time do respond in a relatively predictable way to certain pieces of data because people have expectations around what that is going to lead to in the future. And if we can preempt those And if we can model them and if we can predict them, then it can be a valuable source of return. Now, I'll be blunt, it doesn't always work. So 2020 was a good example, 2020, the relationship between traditional macroeconomic data and markets completely dislocated. You would have a situation where unemployment was at 10 million and stocks actually looked pretty good. That doesn't make a great deal of sense and economists would struggle um, to, to explain that one. But that's a good example of why you need a diverse portfolio. 2020 trend-following didn't really care. It had a blissful naivety about the world. It didn't need to understand why stocks were going up. It just said, stocks are going up. My expectation is they will continue to go up and it will establish a position accordingly. So by having a range of models that look at a range of different things, they're, they're able to capture the widest possible array of different market conditions. that so No single thing, unfortunately, works well universally.
2: Well, I mean, Ed, you mentioned trend following a couple of times there, and you also mentioned in the beginning that that's kind of the roots uh, of Graham. And uh, so I want to maybe focus that uh, on that a little bit. And within trend following, we obviously have also seen uh, a, a large evolution from the early days. Um, and I think in particular, maybe after the global financial crisis, uh, that was kind of the next chapter where some managers started to... Um, you could say, diversify within the trend following, but they did it in different ways. And then Cliff Asnes wrote a a paper last year saying, well, hang on, if we're doing too much diversification in trend, we may not uh, behave like a trend follower uh, to the same extent when trends come back with a vengeance, uh, which they did last year. I think a lot of people did it probably motivated by oh we're all getting compared uh, based on a sharp ratio so we have to we have to kind of do something with this trend to um, to fit into the world of maybe institutional investors and how they look at that or consultants whatever it is i'm just curious from your perspective uh, if you were just looking at your trend uh, following side what you may or may not have done in that area and also whether whether we are being becoming too concerned about shop so that we kind of lose the profile that people really should want from us so to speak uh, I know from a business perspective it's a it's a hard thing to do but but from a pure investment perspective um, what are your thoughts on this
0: got it and I, I think your 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 last point there is is a is a crucial one right I, I think we as an industry often lose sight of of how our strategies are, are used, and I think it can lead to an unfortunate misalignment of incentives. Many managers want to optimize their portfolio. They want to have, as you said, the highest sharp ratio so they can generate the most fees. Is a strategy that is itself optimal going to make the end user's portfolio itself optimal? Almost certainly it is not. In the case of trend following, for example, over the last 10 years, a surefire way of making it better would have been to give it a long bias to equities. Equities tended to go up by giving a trend follower a long bias to equities, it would have incrementally improved its Sharpe ratio most of the time. Most investors would probably say that's a pretty undesirable property for the strategy to have, given the reasons they have for including a strategy like trend following in its portfolio. So I think it's very important to view your strategies through the lens of how an investor is going to use them. And I think a lot of the time that means producing not just a sharp ratio, a sharp ratio is a very convenient average. We need to produce a return distribution. Now for some people, they just want it to make the most money possible over time, for whatever over time may mean. For others, they're more concerned around a conditional return. They want it to make money in certain market conditions. Now the type of strategy you'd construct for one is probably quite different than the type of strategy that you would construct for another. My preference, rather than trying to second guess what investors want, is to have a suite of strategies, building blocks, if you will, at my disposal so that you can have, hopefully, a good conversation with an investor and you can start to understand what it is that they want. What is their objective? Now they need to specify that objective. They can't say, I want something that makes money when markets go down. that is an almost meaningless objective to have like what does go down mean does it mean go down 5% does it mean go down 25% do you mean go down in a week or go down in a year does it have to make money every time or make money most of the time if people can pin down some of these objectives then we can build a strategy for them that helps meet them and i think that's so important because the best relationships are partnerships right if you can if you can work with an investor to build a strategy that achieves what they actually want, then everybody is going to be happy in the long run. This notion of one-size-fits-all is problematic, and I think it leads to, to managers maximizing their own portfolio rather than ultimately maximizing the portfolios of their investors. So I haven't really answered the question, I just realized, but look, does that mean diversification of trend is, is appropriate? Sometimes yes, if done through the lens of what the appropriate objective is.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's that's a that's a fair point, uh, for sure. So what I'm taking away, away from your answer is that you have a suite of products, including Pure Trend, but also Trend Plus something. And we've heard from other managers, we've spoken to this idea of having more of a solution approach to to clients and working with them, etc. And I also understand that fully. But if I was going to, I wouldn't say push back on the idea, but if I was going to raise one question about it, and that is, do we think or how do we know if the investors are best at telling us what they really should have in their portfolio? I mean, if you know what I mean, because the way I look at it is, let's just look at pure trend. And you have maybe some managers with, say, 50 years of actual data. so You can, you can see how it works, and as long as you can... Um, confirm with the managers that they're still doing pure trend, they're not suddenly doing something crazy, then you have some evidence you can work with and it should give you a certain uh, idea of, and I completely agree it doesn't work all the time, but you know how it should work. And sometimes I would think of that as being, well, that's pretty good evidence that you can then use as your building block. But once you start asking people for specific product designs, we have to start then relying on certain backtest of ideas, et cetera, et cetera, to give them that. So how do you how do you balance these two kind of a little bit opposing forces, so to speak? Look,
0: it's it's a very good point. And undoubtedly, sort of with, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think sometimes if you give people the opportunity to customize something, they feel obligated to do so. And, and that may not always lead to the best outcomes. But just because you have the ability to fl- be flexible doesn't mean you necessarily have to be. I think for for many investors, a standard fund account is sufficient. You know, we have a six, $7 billion trend following business with very, very modest degrees of customization. There are a large number of people that look at that and think, you know what, that is right for me. Now for more sophisticated investors, that could be your large public pensions, your sovereign wealth funds, where they have teams that look like my team, right? You know, they have very, very talented um, analytical, uh, teams, those uh, you can engage. Um, they're typically looking for longer term partnerships and relationships. They have a very clear understanding of what their investment objectives are. And then, then I think you can engage, um, in that look, what you can't do is just give people a bunch of Lego bricks and tell them to just, just put them together how you like and we'll trade it. Don't, don't worry about it. You know, there's, there's a spectrum and I think somewhere in the middle is probably the right place to be.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And even though I'm Danish and obviously have a, a, a big passion for Lego, I have to say there are certain times where Lego may not be the right thing to uh, to give to people. One other thing, uh, before I turn it back to you, Alan, and that is this thing about the other point that Cliff Asnes raised in his paper was that we should have a we have a dual mandate, you know, op- absolute returns, but also this crisis alpha, or we should make money when equities go down. What, what are your thoughts about what our real, quote-unquote, objective sh- should be or mandate should be? Well, I, I think that's where the, in,
0: in the investor's objectives come come to the fore. Different investors will have a different expectation for what, what trend following or an associated CTA strategy should do. Some investors, and all of this depends on their investment horizon, will have a different tolerance for crisis type of returns. Now, I be, mean both in terms of magnitude, but also in terms of consistency. I think the consistency is often overlooked. Trend following is, is pretty good at producing returns when equities go down, but let's be clear, it is not a put option. It is likely to do well, but we can contrive scenarios. 2020 was a pretty good one where if something changes in a very specific fashion, trend can be a little slow to turn around. So if you want something that's going to make money 10 times out of 10, not clear that trend following necessarily offers that. Now, what does, you're probably looking at some type of tail protection in your portfolio. Now, are you willing to pay the premium associated with that? And this is the compromise that one has to enter into. The way I sort of think about it and sometimes explain it to investors this way is you can think of all strategies as being sort of imbued with two properties. One is their long-term return and then the other is their ability to generate returns in a crisis. And you start plotting these various strategies on a sort of a chart, and you'd see your your put option does great when markets go down, but its long-term return is pretty miserable. In contrast, your investment in the S&P 500 uh, does great over time, and it does pretty badly when stocks go down, as one may expect. And then other strategies exist at various points in this, in this space. There is no single strategy that is bulletproof. Interestingly, you can start to combine strategies together you almost generate like an efficient frontier where some combination of the strategies is actually better than any of the individual strategies themselves. But, but people need to recognize that there are necessary compromises that they have to make. But I think different investors will find themselves at different points along that curve. Some people will be willing to have something that works less well, but more reliably. That would be true if they are an underfunded pension and they have obligations or they have a very short term investment horizon. If, however, you're a sovereign wealth fund that, in theory, they don't need to care about you know anything for the next 50 years, they'll be like, you know what, I just want to make as much money as I can. And if every now and again it doesn't work as I expect, I'm willing to tolerate that given the rest of my portfolio. So I think that's a good example of where at least a discussion should be had with an investor about what exactly it is that they mean by a crisis.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very important point. Uh, I'm I'm glad you raised that. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to ask because I was thinking about it while you're talking. So sorry, Alan. I have one more little thing I want to squeeze in here when it comes to crises. Alpha. So yeah. uh, we've talked about it over the years on the podcast that it, you know in a crisis, um, how trend following works. But then once you dig into trend following, what we and and other managers have found is that there's one particular part and i don't know if you agree of course but there's usually one particular part of the portfolio that works better in a crisis and that's the commodities um and 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 I, if you agree or if you disagree um are you do you want to venture into why you think that might be uh from your perspective as to why other people and and certainly also what i've seen so far is that at commodity, the commodities actually play a very important part during a crisis period in order for us to generate those returns. I, So this
0: is going to be my statistician's answer here. I I don't agree, but I don't disagree. I, I don't see sufficient evidence to argue one way or the other. I think one of the challenges of crises is that we have a very limited data set from which to infer. And i it, Constantly lectured over the course of my education, the plural of anecdote is not data. And the analysis of crises necessarily sort of relies on a handful of observations. One could look at last year as sort of an interesting point and counterpoint to the commodities argument. A lot of trend followers did very well trading commodities last year. Is it conventional, however, in a crisis for risk assets for agricultural and energy commodities to spike in the way that they did? somewhat unusual in an environment where equities are going down for energies to go up as much as they did. Now, that was because the specific cause of this crisis led to a huge appreciation in energy prices. Now, had that energy move not occurred, because rather than Russia invading Ukraine, we'd seen a war in some non-commodity producing part of the world, could we have seen the similar declines in risk assets without the corresponding boost that we saw in wheat, in energies and so forth. Maybe. And then returns may have looked decidedly different. So commodities 2008, 2022 have been friendly to trend followers. I'm not sure that one can rely on them always being so. I will say that commodities have historically been a bigger and more important part of portfolios than people realize. They are admittedly very, very episodic. The number of times I've had conversations with investors where they've been pretty candid, and they've said, "What? Why do you trade commodities again? You know, you've not made commodities for two or three years, and and then we get a year like last year. And I try and be very polite, and I don't say I told you so, but I know in a couple of years, people are probably going to start asking about commodities again. And it is cyclical, and look, this is why diversification, risk management, and so forth are all important. I do believe they are an important feature of portfolios, but. I wouldn't go as far as to say that they provide more crisis protection than than other assets that we trade. Look, at the end of the day, we have a huge advantage in this space that we can go both long and short. We can stick a minus sign in front of a declining market. And I think that's what ultimately gives trend following the ability to produce positive returns. It's that convexity that we have, that
2: negative correlation in declining markets. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I do take on your point about sample size, because of course, we don't have that many crises. Uh, even though uh, some of us and I'm probably looking at myself have a few gray hair uh, by now but, uh, but it is true. Uh, and of course uh, I mean of course uh, I didn't mean to infer that commodities would always go up in a crisis. I mean as you rightly put at, at the end, we can also make money like we did in 2020 from oil collapsing and, and all of that stuff. Alan, I'm gonna be quiet for a few minutes now and turn it over to you.
3: Well, I just wanted to follow up on this topic because I think it's really interesting. Um, the whole kind of idea of building blocks, and I guess how you know how you use them, maybe depends on on what type of investor you are. Um, but maybe just to delve into it a little bit more, like if you think start from the premise of an investor holding a sixty forty portfolio, and you know, in the industry, we're always telling people. Look at managed futures, look at global macro for diversification. So, you know, if it take, for example, a, a typical kind of private investor, say with a 60-40 portfolio, or or maybe any type of investor, and you were going to add something, would it be trend following, or would it be trend with capped equity beta, or would it be trend? Plus quant macro or trend, plus quant macro plus discretionary macro, you know diversified managed features. How do you think about you know for that if you have one slot to fill in your diversifying bucket, what's the best thing to go into that slot?
0: You know, I and if, if I could ask them one question, it would be what matters more: would be your your long term return or that crisis return? And if it's that you really, really, really want to make big chunks of money when markets go down. As we saw last year, trend following is nearly unbeatable in that respect. When there are trends to follow, and trend following works well, it's, you guys said it in the introduction, it's the, best, it's the best strategy that's out there. There aren't many things that were making 30 to 40% last year, but trend following was one of them. Now, if they want to make some money when markets go down, and they perhaps don't want some of the cost of carry that trend following has, then something like a quantitative macro strategy that's pretty good you know, the way I think about, say, our point macro strategy versus trend following is you have that, you have that CTA smile, that nice convexity that trend following has. The problem is with, with that CTA smile, everyone focuses on the ends. They're very exciting when you make lots of money, but they don't happen that often. What you live with day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year, is the bit in the middle. And for trend following, the bit in the middle isn't quite as exciting. So for some people, what they want to do is they want to take that smile they flatten it out a little bit. It's not a frown, but it flattens out a bit. But it lifts up. So on average, it gets a little bit better. Now, conditionally, it's not quite as good. Different people have different wants, needs, objectives, and so forth. They're not radically different, frankly. Um, but it's always it's always a worthwhile conversation to have.
3: Yeah. and you know, if you think about it, you know, in, in terms of the types of things. Uh, you can do to kind of generate a bit more crisis alpha you know if that's your the bent you want to bring in some of the suggestions are you know capping the equity beta could be one or trading faster is another so you're more responsive um what do you think in terms of the mix of things you can do so the portfolio can be more crisis alpha oriented? obviously buying puts would be the, is the ultimate but that comes at a big cost so, so what do you think is the most effective way there of, of achieving that
0: Like I think you've you've sort of described the spectrum there nicely, right? At one at one extreme, you've got those those puts. They're going to work, unless unless you really screw them up. They're going to work, and they're going to be you know going to be very glad that you had them. You're going to hate them nine years out of ten, you know. At the at the other extreme, you can you can tweak your models a little bit. You can speed them up. Now that has historically come at a cost. 2020 was was an instructive example. You know, we took a good look at our portfolios to say, what would we have to do? to make our trend portfolios consistently make money in a March of 2020 type equity decline. And we can do it. We can speed them up to a point where we would very consistently generate positive returns. It would have been terrible for the 20 years up till that point. And interestingly, it would have been pretty terrible ever since. So you have to be careful in the over-optimizing to a crisis. You're not resulting in a portfolio that is unlivable the rest of the time. Then there is that middle ground. Something like reducing equity exposure is interesting because, look, if you don't have it... What's the problem with trend following? The problem with trend following is inflection points. There's a path dependency, so if markets have gone up a lot and then all of a sudden they go down a lot, it takes a while to turn around. By not having that long exposure, you turn around more quickly. It's sort of analogous to speeding up the system. Um, The problem is you do incur an opportunity cost along the way. Now. Historically, that opportunity cost has been about equivalent to the diversification benefit that you get, so it's really been it's really been a wash. One could argue that as fixed income is no longer the reliable friend it once was. I think probably that calculus has improved somewhat. Um, there's probably a little more utility to a capped beta version of trend following, for example, that looks a little bit more like fixed income used to. But again, I, I keep going back to I think there is no there is no one size fits all one size fits all solution and these are the types of conversations that you need to have now for a lot of people they are going to say look i don't care just tell me what i should just tell me what i should do and i i think for the majority the the sort of regular version of trend
3: following is sufficient however there are customizations that one can make very good and maybe moving into the whole research process a bit you've talked about kind of the evolution of the trading strategies run at Graham. Um, so I guess two things to, to get a sense on. Um, one, obviously you're unearthing new sources of alpha all the time, I guess. So What what's the way to do that? How do you set up a, a research team? Do you just say, hey, go and look for ideas? Do you come together, brainstorm? You know, wh- wh- what does all of that look like? Um, and then, secondly, it might be it be good to get a sense, and then the ongoing evolution, sorry, evaluation of strategies and the decision making around whether to keep strategies or, or retire them, etc. Got it. So, like, if I think about sort of philosophies that we have, um,
0: really, when it when it when it comes down to it, there there are two. And the first is that we do believe that the sort of the rigorous application of scientific principles to trading markets is key to success. Now. By that, I don't just mean finding some complex and convoluted statistical model. I mean more the entire, like, logical, systematic process of inquiry and, and decision making. I think that's singularly important. Um, the other, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit, is I, I very much think that risk should never take a backseat to return, um, and that does enter into our research process to some degree, but. We try and take the best parts of the scientific method. Right, um, You start ideally with a, a clearly articulated hypothesis. Like This is why we're doing this. This is why we expect it to work. It is informed by some expectation, some econometric theory, or whatever it may be. That hypothesis should be testable so that you can then take that idea, you can flesh it out, you can conduct research on it, you can run tests, simulations, you can accept, you can reject, and so forth. Peer review and transparency are very, very important. Um, very rarely has a wonderful strategy been developed by the the lone person locking themselves in their office and emerging victorious six months later clutching a piece of paper with a with a fantastic result on. You know, you need your peers to help you in this process. I think one of the privileges frankly of working somewhere like Rare is I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who can do things that I can't do. And I learn things from them, and it makes me better at my job, and I hope it makes them better at their job. And I think that's important. We employ all of these hyper-educated people, and you don't want their their education to stop the moment they walk through the door. what a, What a sort of damning thing that would be. Um, so we we very much believe in collaboration. Now collaboration, and I'd include innovation in this actually, as well. They're not things that you can mandate, unfortunately. I can't stick a motivational poster on the wall to encourage people to collaborate. They're just not going to do it. Um, you, you have to create an environment where you foster that, you encourage it, you reward people that do it, you you punish people that don't, because having that collaboration, as I said, that include the the innovation in there as well, that's very important to this process. So I rely on the entire team to be responsible for idea generation. I don't have a monopoly on good ideas. I'm I'm sure, you know, my, my guys would, would agree very much with that. Um, everybody's responsible for coming up with new ideas. And then we will start the rigorous process of, of testing them. And that's done very, very publicly.
3: Where would the ideas typically come from? Would it be from academic journals or just observing the markets or... You know, you heard somebody else is looking at something, or you know, is is it that type of thing? It's any and all, right? The reality is, and look, woe is me, this
0: job is is very difficult. It's not getting any easier. Um, the easy the easy stuff has been done. It's been pretty pretty picked over. So you you can't be dogmatic and overly selective about where good ideas come from. Yes, academia is a reasonable source. You can you can have conversations like this, conversations with investors. It can come from observing markets. You know you have to cast a pretty wide net now in doing so efficiency becomes very important it means you have to try and churn through the bad ideas pretty quickly so if you can have a framework where a rapid prototyping is possible it means that you can start to sift through these things more quickly now you have to be mindful of multiple testing and all the other overfitting problems that come with that you can't just throw stuff at a wall and see what sticks Um, but but having an efficient framework is certainly very helpful
3: And then in the second part, in terms of strategies that have worked for a while and then start to perform less well or or, or perform poorly, you know, from, from, from being on the other side, you know, speaking to investors, they often evaluate managers like with a three year time horizon. If you're underperforming, there's. There seems to be this view, OK, maybe that's the, the time frame to, to give a manager in terms of um, – I'm, I'm thinking that, that your, your time frame is probably a bit longer than that in terms of evaluating strategies. But give us a sense on how you, you make those calls, which effectively, ultimately are, 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 are value judgment calls. They are. Look, And I think the process for inclusion and exclusion, that they're sorts of equivalent
0: backwards, but but the same. I think I think systematic strategies are imbued with a certain advantage here, which is that their behavior is ultimately codified. Now, what does that mean? That that means that we can have a pretty good view of their conditional expectation in the sense that you know with a high degree of certainty how they are going to perform under a certain set of market conditions. Like I know that if markets go down a lot, trend following is going to get short and it's going to make money. Now, what I don't necessarily know is are markets going to go down a lot? But this very clear view of conditional performance does give you a lens through which to assess strategies. Like if there were lots of trends to follow and trend following performed poorly, that is a very different scenario than if markets went sideways and trends performed poorly. So I think using that lens of expectation that you should have with a systematic strategy, because they're not a black box. We should be able to explain to a certain degree the type of behavior that's expected. I think that is a very useful tool. I'd say probably an essential tool for assessing performance. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and find yourself in a situation where you're getting rid of a strategy that's done poorly in an environment when it's always done poorly and always will do poorly in the future, but you've got it in your portfolio, not for that time period, but for, but for other ones. So I do encourage people to think of it that way, you know, you gave the three-year example, well, three years isn't, you haven't necessarily seen a realization of all possible market outcomes over, over three years. Now, you're not going to in 10 and 20 and 50 either, but you get my, you get my point that I, I think, it's also why that objective is important again. It's like, if investors have something in a portfolio to just make money, it's very easy for them to throw it out. If, however, they have it in the portfolio to make money when markets do X, Y, and Z, well, they they can start to use that as an assessment tool as well. So the objectives, I think, are, are very important when making decisions about inclusion or exclusion of a strategy in a, in a portfolio.
3: And maybe just one final one on this. I mean, the whole idea of kind of shifts, regime shifts in markets and markets starting to trade differently and maybe a sense of okay, the way the markets have traded in the last few years is maybe... May be different than the previous ten years. Obviously, we've had much more volatility in macro variables, anyway, in growth and GDP. But you touched on the kind of March 2020 or Q1 2020, and how those kind of breakout systems, fast breakout systems, did really well, and they had done badly for 20 years or whatever, 10, 20 years. If those systems did well, say for two years, or you know, how long would it take for you know for you to start to say, actually, maybe there's something changing here in how markets are behaving? Maybe these things should be in our repertoire on an ongoing basis. Um, Hard to say specifically, but would it be kind of two, three years of kind of recurring performance, would you say? So I think you've touched upon one of the biggest challenges that systematic managers face at the
0: moment, which is that everything we do is predicated on an extensive analysis of historical data. I don't know what the next five years are going to look like, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to look like the last 10. And, and what does that mean for the way we construct models and the way we build portfolios? The best trend following strategy that you can simulate today over the last decade still goes really, really long fixed income most of the time. But we all know that fixed income is not going to play out in the future like it has done in the past. So, so what do we do about that? Now, I'm very hesitant to make a judgment call personally. I would always rather try and systematize this decision making and An area of research that we focused on extensively really for the last five or six years, and I will admit somewhat fortuitously because my my thinking around this has evolved somewhat, is to make strategies that are adaptable, strategies that can learn by experience and that can adjust their behavior depending on the prevailing market conditions. We started this originally because we wanted to remove the dependence on a human expert, good as they may be, for parameter selection. So you take something like trend following, there is no single speed that has historically been the best. So ideally, you build a model that could speed up and slow down as the market conditions change, and that is to try and reduce the overfitting problem. Sitting here today at an inflection point for many markets, that actually seems like a pretty good idea in the sense that it allows us to contend with a wider range of potential market outcomes. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can build a strategy that we will be able to adjust come what may. And I think a strategy that can do it incrementally, rather than having to have a team of people sit down and try and decide, oh gosh, I think it's time to start trading faster. I think to do it in a systematic process driven algorithmic way is likely to be more robust and resilient and to be more timely and to do well across a wider range of market conditions. Now, this isn't just something that's unique to to trend. I mean, you know, we take Inflation data, we, we spoke about it earlier, very important today. Two years ago, it wasn't important. Two years from now, who knows? Maybe it won't be important again. Having strategies that can pick up pieces of data and then put them down when they're not relevant. Again, they should be able to do well across a wider range of conditions. They may not be the best in any one of them, but they'll do well on average across a much wider range. And... Philosophically, that's how we started thinking about this this challenge of this inflection point, this changing behavior. Um, Rather than trying to predict it, let's build models that can react to it in a timely way.
2: I would love to dig a little bit deep on that because that's actually something we haven't talked so much about so far in our conversations. So recalibrating parameter selection, doing it systematically, I'm in big favor of that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Can you give us, uh, without giving obviously any secret sauce away, can you give us a sense of how, and if we just look at, I think it's easy for people to conceptualize just look back periods as a time frame, right? It's much more difficult if you use other types of parameters. Let's just look back. Can you give us an idea of how big of a sandbox do you then allow your models to look at in terms of finding these parameters and also how often do you want it to go in the sandbox to look for these i mean how 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 do we think how do you think about these things
0: got it so let's take a, a prototypical trend following model as an example and frankly nearly every trend following model under the sun is a function of recent returns and it takes a position tomorrow depending on what the recent returns have been and if you have a very large look back, it means that what happened yesterday is relatively unimportant. It may be one of 100 days and it gets diluted down. Therefore, the model is slow because it's not reactive to yesterday. In contrast, if you look at 10 days of data, then yesterday is actually quite important and the model is relatively reactive to yesterday and it's, and it's fast. We can control the speed of a trend following model by controlling the amount of data that flows in. You can think of it as having a a tap or a valve that you turn one way and lots of information floods in and the model slows down or you tighten it, restricting the amount of information the model flows comes in and the model speeds up. There are a relatively large number of statistical techniques that will do this. Um, These are very common in the field of signal processing. You think a Kalman filter essentially does this and many other bells and whistles. Um, Ultimately, a lot of these techniques fall under the broad world of reinforcement learning. In essence, they make a decision and they say, today I'm going to set my valve here. And this is the amount of data that's coming in. And then tomorrow they say, how did I do? And if they let in the perfect amount of information and no other decision would have been better, they say, well, it ain't broke. I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to walk away and let it do what it's going going to do. If, however, there would have been some alternative course of action, that would have been more beneficial. Perhaps it would have been better to have been a little faster. They will incrementally turn that valve to speed up and then tomorrow they'll repeat. And that is the process by which these models will update their view. It is much better to do things in a continuous fashion than it is to do things in a discrete fashion. So the traditional way of doing things like this would have been to say, hey, here are half a dozen models. Tell me which one is best. Discrete problems are bad. Discrete problems mean that a very small change in what goes in can lead to a very big change in what comes out. And you never want to see that. So doing it in a continuous way is definitely advantageous. Now, I've made it sound very simple. As with many things that sound very simple, surprise, surprise, it isn't. So while it feels like I've given away all of the secrets, far far from it, but that's the framework (laughs) under which these things operate. Now, in terms of the range, you do want to be sensible, right? you yeah, you know, we the way we thought about it is, well, historically, you know, you go back to, you know, Graham's early days, we'd have some trend following models that would look at trends that last for a few weeks, and you'd have some trend models that would look for trends that last for many months. That feels like a pretty good range to give this model, like as a max and a min, and then we'll let it learn its best way as to what it should be doing. You don't want it to flip-flop positions every day. You don't want it to grind to a halt. I mean one has to be mindful that anything that can learn can learn bad habits and you want to try and prevent that. Um, but that, that process of sort of positive and negative reinforcement is how we found it's good. It, it, that's a good technique for these models to use.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's actually a great way of explaining. I really appreciate that. There, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you uh, in, in this area before jumping to another point, and that is, so I think most people can kind of think about or, or have a good idea of this idea with, in terms of time frame when it comes to signal generation. But there is other uh, th- places within our strategies where we use time frame and look backs, and that's kind of when we look at volatility, when we look at correlations, And I was going to ask you if you could talk a little bit about that in in a sense, because very often these things don't change as maybe as much as one would think, but then we got into a regime, for example, where... You know, volatility got pretty compressed uh, by central banks, and then you thought, well, if I kept using what I used to use, that might give me some huge exposure. I'm not that interested in. So that may not actually be, and and maybe it is, uh, of course, on on your side something that happens completely automatically as well. I don't know, but but do you do you approach this part of the of of the quote unquote lookbacks when it comes to correlations and and uh, volatility? Do you approach that differently than when you look at just sort of signal generation?
0: Absolutely. Look, it's a a great question. I I mentioned how one of our sort of key philosophies is that risk should never take a backseat to return and volatility is a great example of that. Virtually every CTA strategy that you will ever see will take positions inversely proportional to asset volatility. Their ultimate position will be their signal divided by the volatility. That means that volatility is a first order driver of positioning that is as important as the signal. I'm going to venture to say that people on average have probably not spent as much time looking at volatility and measuring volatility as they have tried making and predicting market returns, but they are of equivalent, ultimate importance. Our philosophy with risk management has been and continues to be. We want to be as contemporary as possible. Let's get the most up-to-date estimate of market risk that we can. We will then work out what to do with it. We will give it to a portfolio optimization. The portfolio optimization can elect not to react to it, but let's at least present it with the most contemporary view that we can. We typically measure volatility over the course of a few weeks. Correlation is a corresponding measure, a little more difficult. There's more of them. There we're looking at a month or so. I very much agree with you that volatility has become more volatile and a good response to that is to speed up your estimates we've also seen the opportunity cost of sometimes not adjusting for different volatility regimes now some of this is slightly fortuitous but we spoke earlier about the benefit that commodities had on many trend portfolios in the first quarter of last year but not everybody did so well and one of the reasons is because of volatility and You have to wind the clock back a little bit, but the day after Thanksgiving of 2021, it was a pretty miserable day for us, but there we go. Yeah, nodding heads. We all all remember it. I think crude oil fell about 13% in a day. Not great. Markets were very illiquid. Everybody was on holiday and so forth. Crude oil moves 13%. Everybody's volatility estimates go up. Everybody's positions come down. Now, here we are, February of last year. War breaks out in Ukraine. The price of energies goes up dramatically. Depending on the volatility look back you had is going to radically impact the size of the position that you have. If you're using a one month volatility, you've completely forgotten what happened over Thanksgiving and your positions are probably going to be pretty big and you make a lot of money when energies go up. If you're using a six month volatility, you've still got a hangover from that day back in 2021, and you have a small position and you don't make as much money. Now, that is an extreme example, but it does go to show how the selection of volatility look back can be quite impactful in portfolios. It it introduces a path dependency that I think people don't always appreciate. I mean, volatility was certainly very helpful to our space last year. I think one of the reasons that trend followers in particular were able to do so well is that they made money on relatively big positions early in the year, and they lost money on relatively small positions late in the year. And that's because volatility increased significantly over the course of the summer. Exposures were reduced because of that inverse scaling. And in effect, volatility functioned like a take profit. You don't always see that. That is in fact, very, very rare. But the way volatility evolved over 2022 was very, very advantageous. For trend following positions, that's why you can see trend followers that were long energies all year, yet energies were flat on the year, and it's because they made lots of money on big positions and then lost a little less money on on smaller positions. So volatility is very, very important, and I do think it's something that people don't always pay sufficient attention to. Uh, we spend as much time thinking about risk as we do about return, and you know one side effect of that is that we we do try and measure risk as quickly as possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I just can't help not asking you then the follow-up question to this because we have some very good friends of the podcast um, and people I've known for decades and they have a different view on position sizing and uh, believe that you can and should uh, stick to the original sizing of the position. You should have your stop as your way of uh, managing your risk and that this allows you to make more money on those 5% outliers, and that over time is a better approach in their view, and that's perfectly fine. Now, clearly you have a different philosophy, but I was wondering if you had a way of, of, of maybe voicing why you think that doing it dynamically is better, because in some ways you could say, that if you look at people with a long-term track record that's done one has done static the other one has done dynamic maybe there's not that much of a difference in the long-term returns maybe there is i haven't done the, the detailed analysis but 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 i'm just really curious because you said you spend so much time thinking about volatility you might have a much better explanation than i've ever heard so i'm just really curious about this
0: look i i, I can't i can't guarantee that um but The way I I think about it is, look, if you want to run at a variable level of risk, as a precursor, don't you necessarily need to run at a constant level of risk and then modify it in some way? I feel that people often come at it backwards, that that they say, oh, look, our portfolio runs at a different level of risk, and we found that that's, in general, a pretty good thing. To me, that's slightly unsatisfactory. Ideally, you'd say, here is our baseline. Here is our market timing signal that we have, which we think we have a way of saying that our models know that this is going to be a good opportunity for our strategy. Therefore, we're going to take more. That is the implicit assumption that is being being made here. I will say that the timing of systematic strategies is notoriously difficult. Um, In fact, trend following of trend following is... Almost mathematically impossible. It's interesting. Trend following, I think, is interesting. Trend following relies on markets having autocorrelated returns, right? Necessarily, if a market's been going up, it assumes it's going to continue going up in the future. Once you apply trend following to an autocorrelated set of returns, it actually destroys the autocorrelation, so you can't then trend follow the trend following. Similarly, you can't mean revert it. So timing is difficult. There's also a big asymmetry here. And as we've seen in a year like last year, trend following, when it works, it works very, very well. It tends to have a very heavy right tail. And then when it loses money, it kind of loses money slowly. That's a bit of a problem from a timing perspective. If you miss a good quarter, like imagine that you'd missed Q1 of last year. You gave up your entire year. If you missed Q2 or Q3 or Q4, eh, It didn't matter that much. So the asymmetry in returns induces an asymmetry into the timing risk and the timing decision. It's the opposite to equities, right? Equities tend to go up slowly and go down quickly. So your odds of missing a good period are sort of not as bad as your odds of saving a bad period. It's the opposite asymmetry. So people get careless about it. For trend, it's very, very difficult. So we've elected to run our portfolios at a constant level of risk. For two reasons. One is we can't time them. We've not found an ability. I know I should. I know if I could take more risk when these things were working and less risk when they weren't. It's not like I don't know that that's a good idea. We've just not found an ability to do it. And I will say that the raw signals themselves tend to be a pretty bad indicator. Trend followers, as a rule, have their biggest positions just before they're wrong because markets go up until they go down and vice versa. So maybe people have some other timing signal. I've not found one that's that's compelling. The other reason is that we found that investors like to have a known quantity. If you've got something in your portfolio because you want it to have a certain protective property, you don't want to wake up one morning and find it's running at half the leverage that you thought. It's like only insuring the bottom floor of your house, right? You, you, They like knowing that there is a consistent volatility of returns particularly if they're using it for some protective properties so part of this pragmatic we in a sense that we can't and and the other has been a, a business and investor-led reason
3: i guess maybe just a couple of final ones um you know one of the topics said that that we hear in the media a lot is around liquidity in markets and how you know, from time to time, people say, oh, liquidity is more challenging than it was. And they look at the kind of order books and say, oh, there's not, not the same depth there, etc. And then, you know, periodically we've had a f- kind of kind of stressed conditions in markets, like in treasuries in March 2020, etc. But from your perspective, you know, do, do you agree with that? Or do you think markets are as liquid and as uh, easy to trade? I mean, easy in the sense of an execution sense as, as they always have been. Yeah.
0: So... Look, it's a good question. Graham's not. We're not small, so we definitely have to think about you know what we're what we're pushing through the market. And I think of liquidity as you know, can you do the trade you want at the size you want, at the time you want, at the price you want? You need to consider all of those different aspects. So volumes tell you part of the story, but not all. Bid ask spreads tell you part of the story, not all. Order book liquidity you mentioned tell you part. Yeah, you need to build up a sort of nuanced picture of these things. Um, when you boil it down, I'd say liquidity is good, not great. It's not what it once was. It's not something that is keeping me awake at night. Um, we have had to modify the way that we trade. Now, we, we always are. I mean, it's always an evolutionary thing. Um, I would say that last year, markets were a little less liquid. Um, we normally, in that type of environment, would want to slow down trading, right? Because ultimately, there's always this push and pull of, taking liquidity, which is expensive, but reduces the opportunity cost and market drift. Or you can trade slowly, which is cheaper, but you run the risk of the market disappearing away from you. Normally, when liquidity goes down, you're going to want to trade more slowly to reduce that market impact. But, but last year, markets were kind of ripping up or ripping down. Opportunity cost was looming very, very large and actually outweighing The cost of taking more liquidity, so it was advantageous to actually spend a little bit more money on execution by being more aggressive, even in less liquid market conditions, because you have to spend money to make money. Last year, it was worth the extra cost. Um, Over the last few years, we've seen no material change in our cost of execution. It's something we do pay attention to. To me, it's the canary in the coal mine. Right? If you're if if you're if it's getting more expensive, something bad out there is happening. I think we are helped by the fact that we we only trade the most liquid assets. We're not one of those funds that has made the decision to trade a wider range of assets and liquidity is part of that. I think we've seen some of those markets get very, very crowded and I, I have no intention of, of venturing into them um, for a bunch of other reasons as well. Uh, but I think that's that's... I would be nervous If I was trading a market where CTAs were a big proportion of the overall market activity. For many of the markets that we trade, we're big as we are and big as our industry is, it's still a a sort of relative drop in the ocean.
3: And and outside of that kind of consideration around kind of footprint, uh, what else would you say drives that decision around market selection? You know, and and, and I suppose specifically, you know, we had the issue with the LME last year, um, you know, those types of events, when they happen, I, I guess, cause you to reassess, uh, you know, the, 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 those uh, trading venues. But what was your response on that? And more generally, what, what are the kind of uh, I- issues um, that, that drive that decision? So when I think about the logic of
0: expanding the market universe that you trade, I guess when it comes down to it, you need one or both of two things to happen, right? You either need to see a diversification benefit, diversification improves your risk-adjusted return, or you need to be able to generate higher returns in these new markets than your old markets. One or both of those things necessarily needs to be true. I guess other than it sounds cool, I guess that could be a third reason, but let's, let's not be cynical and assume people do it for that reason. The diversification argument, I'm sorry, it doesn't hold up mathematically. The utility of trading extra markets scales with the square root of the number of assets. That is a direct consequence of the law of large numbers. In the best case scenario that assets are all uncorrelated and they're not, then the best you're going to see is that your risk adjusted return is going to increase with the square root of n. That means that going from 10 to 30 markets is a big deal, but going from 100 to 130 gets you next to nothing. Square roots are horrible in that respect. So the diversification argument just doesn't hold up. So at that point, you're saying you can make more money in these markets than you can your existing ones. I find that a little difficult to believe. I mean, you could say these markets are less picked over, they're less efficient, but I don't know, you're not getting in a Toyota Land Cruiser and driving across a desert to access these markets. You're just electronically accessing a different exchange. I mean, the the barrier to entry is so low that it's difficult to see that the efficiency argument is is that great, and then maybe they do a little better. But are you just being compensated for some illiquidity premium that you know we were just talking about? So, I've not found the argument for expanding the market universe to be compelling from either a diversification or a return perspective. And I'll be honest, over the last five years, I felt a bit like was it King Knut standing on the beach. Yelling at the tide not to come in because it felt like everybody else was doing it. Uh, I don't think it's been detrimental to our returns. I think, in fact, last year we can run parallel versions of our strategies that trade loads of different stuff, and they wouldn't have done anywhere as nearly as well as, as as the market selection that we had. So it's ebbed and flowed, but over time, it's it's washed out to be to be generally, I think, a good a good thing, and we've not had the operational headaches and so forth that that come with it. So. We're not going to expand the list just because. We don't see any compelling reason to do it. You mentioned LME. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Um, not something that I thought I would see. We only trade copper, aluminum, and zinc on LME. We don't trade nickel. So we weren't impacted. I mean, it gave us pause for concern about the LME as a viable trading entity. That's for sure. But we were not directly affected. Um, by what we saw, I mean the LME have pledged to change. Um, I will admit that I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen competing exchanges start to offer similar products because I think people would jump at the opportunity. Um, but we'll we'll see.
2: Can I just quickly ask, Ed, how many markets do you trade? Because I'm not uh, fully aware of that.
0: So, in our trend strategy and our quant macro strategy, we trade 55 markets exactly.
2: Very cool. By, by the way, I did like your explanation here because it's uh, it's rare that you hear someone uh, make the argument, uh, which I happen to agree with, um, but not that many people would say that because it sounds easier to say, well, if you trade more markets, you have more opportunities to find outliers. So, therefore, it's a better thing. But uh, I kind of stick with your point of view as well. Alan, do you have uh, more
3: you wanted to ask? Just maybe one one final one. Um, I know we're over in time. It's kind of around the uh, discretionary decisions, even in the you know running systematic portfolios. And I guess Graham has a discretionary business anyway, so there's always kind of consideration of of um, you know uh, making discretionary calls, but. One thing that I thought about, and so we haven't really discussed it with anybody else, but if you go back to March 2020 and that period, one of the themes that came up is that managers were starting to think about whether they should stop trading at all because of the risk of exchange closures. And um, so, maybe what was what was the discussions like in Graham at that time? And you know what, what you. What, what kind of events would you know w- w- would cause you to say okay we need to actually stop trading the portfolio or significantly cut back on risk for various kind of random kind of uh, risks yeah look it's a good it's a it's a good question we
0: I have a very deliberately broad criteria for discretionary intervention in a systematic strategy and that is there has to be something going on that the systems can't comprehend now just because the definition is broad doesn't mean it's widely applied um, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times in my 12-year career at Graham we've made a discretionary intervention in our systematic strategy. So it's, it's very rare. But systems, they can't comprehend everything, right? If a market moves a lot, they can understand that. They've seen markets move a lot, historically. If volatility gets high, they can typically understand that. But what if there is a counterparty risk, as you described? A counterparty risk is not an input into our daily systematic process. Um, What if there is a very hard asymmetry introduced into a market, a pegged currency, a short ban in an equity market, for example? Well, systems typically assume a symmetry of returns and you don't want to see a situation. We saw people come unstuck with the Swiss franc a few few years back um, for that reason. So those types of things that the systems can't understand, those are reasons that we would maybe have to pull a market or even an exchange temporarily. Then there are ones that are a little bit more sort of nuanced, I guess. Um, You know, what if volatility is increasing even more quickly than our models can comprehend? Or what if there is a well-telegraphed macro event on the horizon, a referendum or an election? The systems don't necessarily know about that. One, I think, interesting feature that Graham has um, is we do have a daily risk committee meeting. I don't, I'll don't. i be honest, I don't love being in meetings, and I don't love being on committees, but this is something that I do actually find is, is valuable. And at 9.30 every single day, the firm, senior people at the firm sit down and we review positions and changes in positions across our whole business, discretionary and systematic, and where they have changed, we want to understand why. And a lot of information filters down from the discretionary traders, because they have these very short-term market views, and we can use that to help inform the decision making on the systematic side. If we identify something that we need to be mindful of, we can then run a series of stress tests, scenario analyses, and so forth. But I think that the rigor of that daily process is something that is relatively unusual, particularly when coupled with the domain expertise within the building. I think if we were if we were just a systematic business, I'm gonna, I'd, I'd struggle to say hand on heart that that's something that we would we would have the diligence to do. Um, so I, I think it's a very useful um, a very useful function of Graham's broader broader trading
2: experience. Fantastic. Yeah, Again, no, I just got two uh, questions left uh, Ed, that I wanted to ask you about, um, and these are all kind of uh, kind of different type of questions. And uh, because we ask we ask all all people on 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 this uh, series about the same, and and that is and and this is a little bit specific again back to trend following, and that is, uh, what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? Apart from the
0: fact that it's dead, because I've heard that it's dead so many times over the last years. I think it's that that people can time it. I've often found that investor flows are quite a good contrarian indicator for trend following performance, right? Yeah, The people that use trend following successfully are the people that make a strategic allocation to it, and they stick with it. You can take something like the CTA index, and you can do buy and hold, and it's done just fine or you can run a strategy where every time it draws down, I don't know, 10%, you redeem, and then you don't allocate until it's back to high water. That makes sort of single digits over the last decade. You know, you you have to ride it out to a degree. And I think the people that have done that have tended to use the strategy most successfully and have tended to have the most compelling results. So timing it is very, very difficult to do. Like I said, I can't do it, my team can't do it. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it means it's very, very challenging.
2: (laughs) No, I completely agree with that one. The final one is just what's kind of get you most excited or concerned, uh, depending on what, which way you want to look uh, as we are heading into 2023. Anything in particular?
0: Look, I, I think 2022 came at a good time for our industry. I think we, we, we did what we'd say, we did what we said we would do. And I think that's very, very important. We're we are able to fulfill an important role in people's portfolios. And I think that's that's absolutely essential. I think it's got people excited about the space once again. I do think it's important that we don't get complacent. I think it's very easy in this business to assume that the success that has got you to this point is this given right that is going to continue into the future. I think one of the things that makes this job interesting, it also makes it challenging and and borderline depressing from time to time is that it is always changing. You always need to to be innovative and to be creative and to try new things and there's a lot of things that I I think we can improve and enhance, you know, we, we touched upon a few of them, the, the the need to make portfolios as adaptable as possible I think is of singular importance right now. The wealth of data we have available to us today is radically different than what I had at the start of my career, it's radically different than what we had five years ago and Contending with both the blessings and the curses that come with that type of data, I think, is, is very interesting. We're seeing a pool of people who, for the first time, have the necessary skills to do this job. There was a real drought of talent for many, many years. It was a combination of inadequate supply and too much demand. To a certain extent, we've seen demand lessen, but we've also seen that there's a lag, right? To go to university, to study a postgraduate degree, it takes time. We're now seeing people come out with the type of skills that we really look for, and and that's that's great. That's uh, sort of been a bit of a revelation for us as well. So I think the outlook looks good from that perspective, and I I think investors are becoming acutely aware of the importance of diversification in their portfolios. They For a long time, they had bonds and bonds were great. They made you money and they went up every time stocks go down. Well, now bonds are losing money and they're losing money when stocks go down. And I think people recognize the need not for passive diversification in their portfolios, but active diversification. And we can create that. We joked earlier about we can stick a minus sign in front of something. But that becomes very important because it means that we are masters of our own destiny. We don't need to cross our fingers and hope for the best systematic strategies can to an extent make their own reality. And I think that means that we can create things that people will find increasingly helpful as a lot of their traditional outlets for offsetting diversifying risk are starting to diminish. So I think for the the, the outlook looks very, very positive from a research perspective and also from, you know, ability to raise assets and to play an important role in people's portfolios.
2: Yeah. I think that's a wonderful way to end our conversation uh, today and it has been fascinating it uh, we really appreciate that thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts and all of your insights and of course we hope we can do this sometime again in the future. To all of you listening today, I hope you're able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and your colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unblocked as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out all the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on the website. And not least, of course, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.